This is an ABC podcast. Lock the doors. That's climate action now. This Prime Minister does not like scrutiny. The Labor Party is clearly embarrassed. This is a Prime Minister who cannot stand up for integrity. How good is Australia? Here, here. Those opposite are all smear and no idea. Hello, welcome to the party room. I'm Fran Kelly from RN Breakfast. And I'm Patricia Carvellis from RN Drive. And Fran, it's been like dueling banjos this Totally right. Scott Morrison and Anthony Albanese essentially going tit for tat over which issue they think should dominate the political agenda. You know, they're trying to get their issue up based on what suits them politically. Yeah, exactly. You've got the opposition trying to hold the government to account over the latest sports rules revelations. The Prime Minister saying that he's focused on coronavirus, people's health and their jobs. I'm going to focus on coronavirus at the moment. If, if we've exhausted the interest on coronavirus, I'm happy to deal with other matters. But I've got to say, I think the coronavirus is an issue of much greater concern to Australians today than the politics of Canberra. What I'm interested in, Lee, and I think what Australians are interested in, is what's going on with the coronavirus, what's going on with bushfires, what's going with the economy, which are the matters that we discussed but earlier in this interview. Got it. He's interested in the coronavirus. Meanwhile, Anthony Albanese's clear in his line of attack. How can the Prime Minister claim he simply passed on information on the corrupt sports rort scheme when the Audit Office told Parliament last night the list of sports rorts projects was changed after the election was called, and I quote the Audit Office here, at the request of the Prime Minister's office? OK, so quite clear there that Anthony Albanese has been wanting to scrutinise uh, the Prime Minister and his office's involvement in the sports rorts affair, whereas the Prime Minister has used lots of devices to try and bring things back to coronavirus. And, and Labor's point has been consistently, hang on a minute, it's not that we don't care about coronavirus or the economy, we just think you can walk and chew gum. And I think, you know, that's a reasonable position. I think you can do a couple of things and it's the role of oppositions to hold governments to account. But the PM's trying to do a couple of things at the one time here, isn't he, Pigay? He's trying to get out from under Anthony Albanese's line that the Prime Minister's sort of loose with the truth and, and, and more scrutiny on this community sports grant. Um, but he's also trying to project a government in control, a, a government that's on the front foot, a government that is strong, a Prime Minister who is leading the country because he was hurt so badly on those indicators during the bushfires. So I think that's really also turbocharging his determination to keep um, people listening to him talking about the coronavirus. Now, in the Senate estimates this week, lots of revelations have been made. It got pretty willing this week. Labor probed on this community sports grant scandal and the Prime Minister's office's direct involvement in it. Here's an exchange between Penny Wong and Matthias Cormann. Do you have a specific allegation? I OK, then... I will put it. I put to you that Senator McKenzie backdated the brief. Well, I don't agree with that. I mean, okay. there's, absolutely no, there's absolutely no evidence for you to make that outrageous uh, allegation. Okay. And all of the evidence uh, on the public record uh, you know, clearly indicates that That's this brief was dated. That's not true. And just because you say it doesn't make it true. Well, just because you make no, no. an outrageous I mean, the, well, well, allegation yes, against the senator first, doesn't first, make it true. First, would you like me to go through the evidence? And so on they went. They do this a lot, these two, in estimates, but it did get quite sort of testy this time around. And, you know, it was all about whether the Prime Minister was being caught out here. Matthias Cormann's job, PK, was to really run defence for the PM. But what do you think? Is the PM in trouble over some of the evidence we heard? Yeah. <laughs> I think the Prime Minister's office 
has been implicated deeply in this through the evidence that we've heard. Although I will clarify my answer on, yeah, is he in trouble? Uh, I think that some of the evidence is quite damning. Will it be politically consequential for him? I'm not certain of that at all, actually. Mm. That's so no. I I think he could actually come out of this and not much happens at all. But just some background on this. Sports Australia received several different versions of then Sports Minister Bridget McKenzie's colour-coded sports grant spreadsheets the day the 2019 election was called and projects were added and removed following her office's correspondence with Scott Morrison's office. And that's key, Fran, that that correspondence with the Prime Minister's office led to changes. Now, that's not just Labor saying it, because I know that's the Prime Minister being, that's what he's been saying, you know, Labor's throwing this smear. This has actually been revealed in evidence in the Senate estimates process. Here's Brian Boyd from the Australian National Audit Office in estimates on Monday night. The final version of the spreadsheet was circulated to Sport Australia at 12.43pm and shortly before then, if you just bear with me for a second, at 12.35pm it was sent from the Minister's office to the Prime Minister's office. 12.35. That was to the Prime Minister's office. On the 11th. On the 11th and at 12.43 sent to Sport Australia. But it's the same version on both those times. But different to the 8.46 version. Different to the 8.46 version. So when the the evidence said the project she intended to approve, that's that's right, isn't it? Because it it changed. Correct. What was was finally approved. Correct. That's right, Senator. As I say, the next version we saw was at 8.46am. And in that version at 8.46am, we had one project be removed from the list of those being approved for funding and another project coming in in substitution. Later that day, we had one project coming out and nine more coming in. So that's Brian Boyd from the Australian National Audit Office. Why is that important, what you just heard there? There's a few details about times. Well, those times were 8.46 in the morning and 12.35 in the afternoon. Importantly, are both after the election was called, after the Prime Minister went to um, ask the Governor-General to prorogue the Parliament and call the next election, which means the government is officially in caretaker mode. So really nothing that's to do with any kind of money being spent should have been sent anywhere after that time, 8.29 in the morning. The fact that um, more was sent to Sports Australia after 12.35, that's several hours of caretaker mode by then, Labor thought was very significant. And what was significant too that we heard there was that one project on that uh, in that 12.35 email sent to Sports Australia. One project came out and nine went in and Brian Boyd later said that one of those was at the specific request of the Prime Minister's office. So, PK, on the face of it, it does sound like more direct involvement by the Prime Minister's office in this than the Prime Minister has been indicating. Yeah, well, what he consistently says, and he's stuck to the script, Fran, the whole week... And I he's think, good at that. Yeah, he's really good at sticking to the script, has been that he, his office just passed on information. And he was asked repeatedly and in a very direct way by the opposition and the opposition leader in question time in relation to all of this evidence, he just kept to the script. And that's the kind of political paradigm we're living in. Um, he can just do that. Uh, that's 
what he's been doing. He's politically survived it because I do think the issues around coronavirus and the fact that I think he's right, Australians are focused on that. I think people do think about their own health and the consequences for their families and their work and how to manage all of this. That is where people's focus is. So yeah, the opposition, I think, has done the job that opposition should do, scrutinise governments. I mean, that's part of their job. But whether ordinary people are focused on this, I'm not convinced they are. No, I, I think, as we discussed last week in the podcast, Jackie Lambie said she thinks people aren't listening to anything Polly say, let alone the detail of this. So what does it amount to? You know, when I first started out in political reporting, misleading the parliament was a very, very serious charge uh, and ministers had to come in immediately and correct records and there was, you know, a, a censor around that. Now, the Prime Minister hasn't conceded he's misled the parliament, but if it was proven by this evidence to estimates, there's no sense this is going to come to anything, though there, I think there is a bit more evidence to come in this, isn't there, PK? Well, look, there's an entire Senate committee that's going to be investigating this and and we know that Bridget McKenzie will appear... Uh, that will be a popcorn day. She was the sports minister at the time. Uh, she will be asked many, many questions about those interactions with the Prime Minister's office. Um, let's see how she answers those questions. Uh, will she throw the Prime Minister's office under the bus? Well, probably not, because mm. if you listen to the language, I mean, that's a prediction and I, you know, I might be wrong, but if you listen to the language... Uh, that's being used about Bridget McKenzie after she lost her job on a technicality, really. It was the leader of the Nationals who was talking about her coming back as a minister as soon as she left. So I think the way it works, and I think it's a sad political reality now, is that, you know, you you take the fall, you rehabilitate yourself. Look at someone like Susan Lee. She's environment minister again. She took a fall. She's rehabilitated. That's what happens. So... I think that's where this might end, although it doesn't mean it's not politically embarrassing for the government while this Senate inquiry investigates this. On that note, PK, let's bring in our guest. (laughs) Jennifer Hewitt, National Affairs columnist for the Australian Financial Review. Welcome to the party room. Great to be here. Jennifer, hello there. Let's start with the economy and the coronavirus. You've written many great columns this week, but the one I loved was the one in the Fin Review that talked about the toilet paper index seems to have replaced the volatility index as the starkest indication of the level of fear unleashed by the coronavirus. Now, that is just gold. Expand on that, can you? Well, of course, you've got the volatility index, um, which is supposed to measure volatility uh, in stocks, and it's called the VIX. Uh, Well, I decided that a much better monitor was the TICS, what I'm calling the toilet paper index. Uh, and it's at least, I think, as reliable a barometer of the public mood as the volatility index is. Uh, and this is known um, in, in the US as, as the fear index, uh, because as, as we've seen, stock markets go up and down all the time, depending on what the, you know, the latest uh, bit of news is and, uh, and that whole herd mentality. And naturally, we, we're seeing that uh, occur in the public as well. And so these remarkable scenes of everybody just emptying um, the supermarket shelves because of the toilet paper alarm um, is is really, I think, an indicative of how people are so nervous and so uncertain about what happens and, and it kind of spreads. And now the government has, you know, given us the first very firm indication of how it might respond. You know, they've been under pressure for a long time, actually, from Labor and, and some economists to stimulate, but they've said now they will, and this is in the wake of the coronavirus. Walk us through or why coronavirus, now. coronavirus, as it's been dubbed. Get a coroma. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on? Why now? How bad is it getting, Jennifer? 
Uh, because the government is rather nervous that it is getting uh, very bad. I mean, we've spent uh, a lot of last year uh, with the government politely, or in fact not so politely, ignoring the calls from the Reserve Bank and other uh, economists to do a little bit more to stimulate the economy. And the government's basically held that off. It was determined to get to a budget surplus and it also wasn't entirely sure uh, what Philip Lowe was talking about, what could practically be done. Because, I mean, for example, talk about about infrastructure spending is terrific, but mm. infrastructure spending, it doesn't have an immediate impact. It's a very long-term thing. So they were determined to just kind of hold off, although they had been hinting for some time that there'd be some kind of investment package for business in the budget. Well, now all of that, the coronavirus has just accelerated all of that. So for once, everyone's singing off the same song sheet pretty well. Well, sort of, but we don't know... Uh, whether everyone's going to be singing off the same stimulus plan, do we? You know, um, Jim Chalmers and Labor, they've been out since June, I think it is, saying stimulate, 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 and they're talking about infrastructure as you were. Bringing forward ta- the next round of tax cuts was one of their ideas. Topping up New Start that would cost $3 billion, money straight into pockets that will be spent. I don't know. There's no sign the government's going to go that far, is there, or that style? No, I don't think at the moment the government is going to go anywhere near, for example, New Start and putting money or uh, into people's pockets. Well, they're saying their focus is on jobs, protecting jobs and therefore protecting businesses and the ability to keep staff on and and businesses that are starved of cash flow, and that's what their priority is. Now, whether or not that changes over time, as we've seen in the last few weeks, um, you know, rhetoric and action can suddenly change direction. But I think at the moment that's where the focus is going to be. Well, they've used the language of targeted stimulus. Another word that they use is scalable. And we've got some idea of how much now from the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, because he's he's used that language, BB billions. The package will be large, Jennifer, but what do they mean by scalable? Does that mean there'll be more later? Well, it means that if the situation gets worse, that they can therefore, you know, ramp it up, ramp up the existing programs. At the moment, uh, the focus seems to be on making sure this is a kind of a temporary measure, that you don't have kind of long-lasting things, too many long-lasting things built into the budget. It's this kind of view of contrasting narratives and and what they don't want to do is say that they're behaving in a sense in the same way that the Labor government did during the global Mm -hmm. financial crisis and and building all this stuff into the budget that just blows the budget, you know, indefinitely and means you could never get back to surplus. Now, these these competing narratives we're going to see very strongly put by both sides over the next couple of months at least. You know, the the risk for the government is that it kind of underplays this, um, but it, at the same time, it, the, he doesn't want to overplay it. So they, they're just kind of um, being very cautious exactly um, how quickly and how much they will roll out. Yeah, and part of that is because they are determined that even if the surplus is blown this year, and we'll get to that, you know, they don't want they want it to get back into surplus before the next election. I'm sure as part of their important kind of you know electoral pitch. But just just to step back a little bit, you know, the competing narratives. What gets me is that one part of that narrative that's always left out is that yes, Kevin Rudd funneled out you know tens of millions of dollars into the pockets of of households, but it worked. I mean, Australia did stay out of recession and the rest of the world looked on and went, "Mm, that was pretty good. You know, so we need to be careful that the government doesn't, because it doesn't want to be seen to be doing what Kevin Rudd did, that we don't 
you know, we don't put enough stimulus out there. Yeah, that's right. But of course, it's always a question of degree with these things. So the argument from the government is, look, of course, there was some stimulus that was necessary. But the fact is that the Labor Party version of stimulus was excessive. And also mm. particularly issues like the school halls and the pink bats, you know, which became such a, a bugbear for Labor. That that was a problem as opposed to, you know, the immediate cash stimulus. The other thing, of course, that you've got to remember is that at the same time, um, straight after after the um, global financial crisis was when the Chinese economy really took off and also the um, demand for our commodities. And that was a huge buffer. So it wasn't just the government's um, stimulus package, though obviously that had something to do with it as well. So Jennifer, mm. surplus. They promised that we'd be back in the black. Now we're back in balance. Is that they've changed the language? Well, back in balance, well. yes. B&B. I mean, it's <laughs> all, all these They made these mugs, made, though. They did, they did make mugs. That was that was a little preemptive, clearly, um, at the time, as they kept saying, well, who could have foreseen the coronavirus? Well, of course, you know, nobody could, I suppose. But isn't that the job of government? I wonder whose idea that mug was, you know. They're going to be in real trouble now, aren't they? They're, whoever had that great idea. <laughs> Well, I think those mugs are going to be worth a lot of money for raffles <laughs> and things like that. Um, but, yeah, that's why the government is not giving up on this and, and keeps on and, in fact, tries to avoid this idea of saying they're giving, you know, broad-based fiscal stimulus. Now, I think in the same way that the volatility index or the toilet paper index are both equally reliable or unreliable, exactly what's going to happen over the economy over the next six months, really, you'd be a mug to try and figure out. <laughs> um, <laughs> Except, except Treasury has told the government, hasn't it, that the coronavirus will wipe at least half a percentage point of GDP in the short term. So there's some negative oh, territory yeah, we're heading that's into. That's right. Oh, there's no doubt there's, there's negative territory. It's really a question of how long that lasts and how much deeper it gets. Uh, you, you have all sorts of um, predictions about, well, you know, China will unleash this, you know, giant stimulus package within a few months. So it'll be a V-shaped recovery. So we'll go down mm. sharply and then go up again just as sharply. And then you've got other letters of the alphabet, like U, you know, maybe we'll be going along the bottom for a while and then go up. And then there's W, we'll go up sharply, then down again sharply. So really, um, <laughs> much as I'd love to say, you know, what the expert view is, it isn't that much better than anybody um, who you ask on the bus. Not that you're allowed to speak to people too much well, anymore. On the toilet roll. Of... <laughs> on the toilet right. roll, roll, Willies. <laughs> oh, I can't take it. Actually, Jennifer, I do need to check. Did you go and bulk buy toilet paper? Uh, no, but I did get uh, a packet from the local news agent, which, uh, <laughs> as opposed to the supermarkets, after I heard the supermarkets are out. Okay, I'm glad that you're at least stocked up. At least you've got enough. I mean, you need to have enough. I just want to change the conversation, although it's really related in many ways to the issue of trust in politics, but more specifically, trust in the prime minister. Labor's been trying to build a story for some time that the Prime Minister is loose with the truth, that the Prime Minister can't be trusted, that he's slippery with his language or the way he answers questions to journalists. And, of course, the Prime Minister did have an entire formulation around the Canberra bubble to avoid answering questions. He seems to not be using that quite as much as he used to. But either way, he's been saying, even he's used coronavirus this week to do the same thing. But there's been a couple of moments this week that I think are significant Scott Morrison admitted, for instance, on Sydney Radio 2GB that he, he did put Hillsong leader Brian Houston's name forward for the White House state dinner at the time. Now, at the time that story was written, the Prime Minister was asked so many times, I can't count, including at the press conference in um, the US and then later in Australia, 
if this happened. He called it gossip. He, he did an interview with David Spears where he even went further than gossip and sort of said, you know, what's the source? What's the source kind of thing? And now he kind of drops it that he did. Why Why does he do this? I mean, there was a sort of fiery exchange between him and Lee Sales on this question, but is this an issue of credibility for him that he doesn't answer questions straight? I think it's certainly an issue he needs to address. Labor has, of course, been trying to talk about this issue and little instances like this, I mean, you know, in the sense you can say, well, does it really matter? If it goes to a pattern of behaviour, then I think people begin to question it a bit more. In that sense, he's lucky because everybody is so consumed by the coronavirus and so you can see in that why it was kind of quite reasonable timing as far as he was concerned to put it out now. But yeah, there was no good reason to be so elusive, to put it politely, with the truth uh, about what had happened with Brian Houston. And I do think if he keeps that up, it is going to be a growing problem for him. At the moment, I think not that he would have um, wished, obviously, for the coronavirus to occur, but it is giving him the chance to make up for the leadership and kind of overwhelm other narratives. So these, again, these competing narratives will come to the fore. Um, For the government, for now, people, I think, are paying more attention to the bigger issues. I think he's right. In that sense, the timing is fortunate for him. But but just to stay with the Brian Houston thing, and, and, you know, the PM's right in that this is a, a kind of a minuscule matter, really, but the point is, the cover-up is always worse than the crime. Why did he come clean now? Does that suggest to you, Jennifer, that uh, the Prime Minister and his office uh, know that the stonewalling has registered with people? Maybe they've got some polling suggested they've got to get this off the agenda? Why uh, yeah, I, I think, just don't understand that. Well, I think because um, it will be overwhelmed by the bigger story. And so he's now out with the trash. Sort of. Yeah, kind of. And he's also kind of on slightly firmer ground, I think, in terms of talking about the coronavirus. So that becomes more of a side issue as opposed to dominating question time mm. or, or dominating, you know, the, the media coverage. It's, it's kind of a story, but not that one that people pay that much attention to. Um, but also I think they do realise that this targeting of Morrison is a bit of a risk and he actually has to be a little bit more uh, careful when he's being very slippery. Mm. Jennifer, just um, all of this stuff about the sports scandals that have been before Senate estimates, Patricia and I have been talking about earlier, it's led for calls for a National Integrity Commission. I interviewed the Attorney-General, Christian Porter, earlier in the week, and he's got a plan for National Integrity Commission, but we still haven't seen it in the Parliament. But, but he also conceded that his plan, his Integrity Commission, would essentially not cover integrity issues like the community sports scandal. In fact... Uh, I, I checked back on this and when the when the then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and his Attorney-General were talking about it, the Nats were really lobbying hard that any commission the government came up with should not interfere with ministerial discretion over grants programs. So maybe they sort of saw into the future and saw where this could lead. But certainly it's a major weakness of any National Integrity Commission if it couldn't deal with these kind of allegations of, of pork barrelling, isn't it? Well, yeah, I think it would be a major weakness of any such commission. Um, And I think in terms of the, you know, the pork barrelling stuff, I mean, this is, I think it's been very damaging to the government. I I think that, uh, again, it's being overwhelmed um, to uh, a large extent by the coronavirus. But I think there has been an impression that set in that this was a giant rort. For the government, the only saving grace, I suppose, is that it just means that they're just like every other government before them and they all use this system without people kind of going into the details. But 
clearly it's been a big negative for the government. And this week, the revelations, which we've already touched on with Fran, but that the Prime Minister's office was so heavily involved in changing or suggesting some changes, the Audit Office confirming that, that's not what they told us. No, it's not what they told us. And I think it was such a, an obvious technicality to get rid of the minister when clearly the whole government, and certainly it's, it very much looks like the, the, the PMO was deeply involved in, in this, the structure and the way the system worked. But on a broader point, the other issue I think about this is that Morrison's very clear view in terms of his dealings with the bureaucracy in general and departmental advice is that it is, in a sense the government and the ministers that must have the real say, that they Mm. should not be. I mean, I think he. we had a story um, in the Financial Review where he told his ministers that the worst thing that people could say about them was that they were prisoners of their department. Yeah, and And remember when he first took government, he called the the, um, mandarins all together and said, look, your job is not so much free and frank advice, your job is to make us be able to fulfil will give us the policy direction on how we fulfil our promises. So answer to what we've promised rather than answer to what's best policy in a way. Yeah, that's right. It's In his view, it is the politicians who determine the policy with advice perhaps, but that is it's still their role and their responsibility. So it's a kind of a rather different um, take on things. Um, that can work. I don't think that's necessarily a negative for the government at all, but it only works when things are going right. When things go wrong, of course, there, <laughs> there's no cover. <laughs> that certainly isn't. Hey, Jennifer, you've been such a great guest. Thanks for coming in. Pleasure. Thanks, Jen. See you. Fran, the bells are ringing. It must be question time. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. Yeah. Yeah, PK, we've got this one from Anthony on Twitter today. Anthony says, it seems like the Prime Minister may have misled Parliament, perhaps several times in the sports rorts affair. What, if any, are the consequences of misleading Parliament? Given the numbers in the House, would he ever be called to account? Yeah, so it's a convention in the Westminster system that if a minister or even the Prime Minister is found to have misled Parliament, they kind of are expected to resign or or face being sacked. But Again, convention, what's the mechanism, right? It takes a bit of personal responsibility, particularly or the prime minister, if it's if it's not him himself forcing a minister to do it, uh, because the government has the numbers, so you can't do it via the numbers of censuring them. So ultimately, if you think about it, there isn't necessarily any consequences if that convention isn't followed. And right now... We know that Bridget McKenzie's resigned. That was as a result of you know falling on her sword on a technicality. So that's happened because of revelations in the Gagin's report in that case. But is the Prime Minister going to resign? I don't know, Fran. I don't reckon. No, <laughs> Do no he's not going to resign. And before it gets to that level, because it is a convention that has always been taken seriously, ministers, when they've been found to have misled Parliament, if they concede that, do tend to very speedily come into the Parliament. You know, sometimes if it's in the if it's revealed early in the morning, they'll be standing in the Parliament at 10 o'clock in the morning acknowledging that they've misled Parliament. But the Prime Minister's not acknowledging that. He's not conceding that and it's not proven to the extent that, you know, it's absolute. Um, So he doesn't have to do that. Therefore, there's nothing much for the opposition to do. Once a a minister does come in and concede they've misled parliament, then that allows the the opposition parties to move censure motions and, and censure them and all those sorts of things. But still, they're just conventions. They don't have any real impact 
to a person's sort of longevity in the parliament or anything like that. It's time to call last drinks in the party room for this week. But just before we get there, we've talked a lot about coronavirus today. If you've got a specific question about it, the ABC has just launched Coronacast. It's a podcast that answers those questions. Every weekday it breaks down the latest news and research to help you understand the world around you, living through an epidemic, uh, how to manage it. I think it's a fantastic idea and mm. obviously it's pretty easy to get. Just like you get the party room, it's called Coronacast. Coronacast, great name. And, you know, there are lots of questions but also points to be made. Like I heard anecdotally uh, in my suburb from a dental nurse, we've, we've heard the dentists are freaking out because they can't get masks. And in this dental surgery, there's only one mask available for each of the people who are working there, which is problematic. And she said she went online and she saw someone selling a box of masks for $700. That's just not good enough. No, it's pretty outrageous stuff going on, I suppose. That's the thing. People are desperate to get their hands on some of this. Uh, look, I know I've got to... Brings out the worst in us sometimes, doesn't it? The it, best and the worst, I guess. It certainly does. Now, Fran, we're going to see each other on the weekend for our WOMAD live show. If anyone's in Adelaide or going to the festival, we will be doing our WOMAD live show on Sunday and we will release it as well. It'll be an excellent episode. Fran, are you going to pack some hand sanitizer for me? I couldn't get any pick out. I've been searching. There's nine chemists in the block where I live. Not one bit of hand sanitizer left. You helped Sorry. me with hand sanitizer at the Mardi Gras. <laughs> I did. I did. I did. Um, so, look, I'll do what I can. I've got some gloves. I'll bring them along. But if you are in Adelaide, we'd love to see you at WOMAD on Sunday at 3 o'clock. It's International Women's Day. Slap on some purple. Slap on some purple. See you, Fran. See you, PK. Hello, I'm Norman Swan. I've been reporting on health issues for many years and I've never seen anything like this coronavirus pandemic. It's spreading fast, it's infecting people very quickly and people are dying at much higher rates than they do with seasonal influenza. Everyone has questions, which is why we've launched a new podcast called Coronacast. Every weekday, we'll be answering your questions and explaining what you need to know. Find Coronacast on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.